Welcome to Church History, Part 5, How We Got the Bible. Um, let's begin with some scripture, one scripture. We'll read from Acts 2. So you could turn with me there. Acts chapter 2, we're going to read the first 12 verses. I think this goes along well with the fact that we're going to be talking about the translations of the Bibles today, translation of the Bible today, and how God revealed through the Holy Spirit um, through the apostles, um, through the speaking of tongues. So let's read Acts 2, first 12 verses, and then we will pray. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. In divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia in Pamphylia, Egypt and other parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? So I think it's important as we study the fact that the scriptures have come to us and been passed down into each of our own, for us English primarily, native tongues, that the Lord sponsored that eventually, it, it initially at the advent of the church. Um, I think it's important for us to see that as we see how the Bible has been translated through the ages, and that's what we'll start with today. So let's pray, and then I'll give you a brief introduction. Dear Lord, we, we do come before you, and um, our primary purpose here, Lord, is to worship you, and we do that right now, and we humbly come before you and worship you. And, and Lord, we are grateful that you have called us to be a people that come together to fellowship, Lord. Lord, I, I pray that as we um, study the history of your word, Lord, we would once again see your sovereign hand at work. Uh, we would see how you have guided all of history, um, Lord, to, to build your church by saving sinners and bringing sinners to yourself through Jesus. Thank you so much for this time, Lord. I pray that it would be beneficial. Lord, I pray that it would bring glory to your name and that because of it, we would worship you all the more for what you've done in this world. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay, so, <clears throat> all right, here we are. Let's go here as our schedule. I think last four weeks I've teased you by saying we're going to do sola scriptura, but I thought it was necessary to, to pull back a little bit and look at some other translations prior to the Reformation, so we're going to call this section Translation History of the Bible Through the Reformation. So we'll hit, we'll hit on the Reformation towards the end of our lesson today. And then next week, when we talk about the history of the English Bible, we'll really dig into um, more of the Reformation at that point. But today we'll talk about some of the non-English uh, translations of the Bible that came out during the Reformation. Um, so that's my hope, that we'll cover the key translations of the Bible from the ancient times through the Reformation. Um, it's kind of odd, though. Um, we've kind of, we kind of left off about 200 or so A.D. last week, if I'm not mistaken. And we're going to talk about translations of the Bible that occurred in the 300s. So we're going to span from the 300s 
all the way to the 1550s. It's a monumental task, but there's one outlying reason why that's possible, and that's because for nearly a century, the Latin Bible was the primary Bible of Christianity. Um, so we, we're going to spend a decent amount of time on the Latin Vulgate today. Um, but that, so it seems like a daunting task for us to talk about 1,300 years or so in history or 1,200. But that's because a 1,000 of it or so was roughly uh, dedicated. The scriptures were dedicated to one primary language. So um, breathe easy. You'll get to the second service if you anticipate getting there. So um, outline for today. Today I'd like to talk, like I've already said, early translations of the Bible. Let's, so the, the, the scriptures start being written in Greek, but the, the um, Christianity has spread beyond just the primary Greek-speaking regions of the world, so there's a need for other translations of the Bible um, around the Mediterranean and as, the, as Christianity spreads out. We'll talk about the Latin Vulgate, um, and I think it's necessary for us to identify some the impact that the Renaissance had on the Bible and how it predated the Reformation and some important things relative to that. And then we'll talk about Bible translation within the Re Reformation itself, and that's very exciting. The Renaissance impact on the Bible and Bible translation are, this is my favorite time in history, so um, you might have to contain me. Um, so I really enjoy that. Okay, so just some of the early translations of the Bible. We've already touched on this, uh, the first part, which is the Greek Septuagint. We know that in 200 B.C. approximately, um, the Greek Septuagint, which is the uh, translation of the Old Testament into Greek, um, occurred um, probably in Alexandria in northern Egypt. Um, because there was a need of, there's a lot of um, Jewish people actually in Alexandria, and uh, at the request of the leader there, um, the Greek, the Septuagint was created. So it was a translation of the Hebrew Bible. Um, so that was like the initial onslaught of the, the Bible itself being translated into another language. So there's three examples, though, of New Testament books being translated, uh, or tr three languages where the New Testament was translated very early on. So let's talk about those real quick. The first of those is Syriac. I have no idea what Syriac was until I started the study. Syriac is very similar language to Aramaic. So Aramaic is the language that was spoken at the time in, uh, in, uh, during Jesus' time. So the Syriac version or translation of the New Testament um, was one of the primary ones. It's a primary language in, obviously, the, the area of Syria in Mesopotamia, so a little bit over to the east as well. Um, like I said, it's very similar to Aramaic, so it could have been understood by Jews who did not know Greek uh, very easily, um, but also even non-Jews of the region. A gentleman by the name of Tatian, T-A-T-I-A-N, I have it there, so I don't need to spell it, um, from, came from Rome into this area in the early, or in the mid-100s um, A.D., and he compiled the Diatessaron, which was a compilation of the Gospels. He kind of pieced all the Gospels together and put them in chronological order um, and translated them from the Greek into Syriac. So you can see, even within the, the century following the Apostles, there's an immediate need to translate the Scriptures or the letters they had written in the Gospels into the language of people surrounding areas. Um, by the 5th century, though, the Syrian churches had to make a serious effort to replace the Diatessaron because people were using that as their primary source as opposed to the Gospels. So the Gospels themselves had infiltrated into the uh, Syriac language as well. 
And in the fifth century, a complete translation of the uh, scriptures was done in Syriac, and it was called the Peshitta. I didn't put that up there for you, but it's P-E-S-H-I-T-T-A. In the fifth century, that is a complete Syriac uh, translation of the Bible. Besides Syriac, there was also Coptic. Coptic is, was a further developed Egyptian language that was written using Greek characters. Um, so obviously parts of Egypt, because Alexandria was a pretty major city in Egypt, spoke Greek. But other parts of Egypt did not. Uh, so there was a need for, other, um, for the scriptures to be in another language, which was Coptic. Um, and we have manuscripts that exist from the 3rd and 4th century of the Coptic language, the scriptures in the Coptic language. So once again, seeing the advent of the scriptures in other languages. The next would have been Latin. So at some point, Latin comes onto the stage in world history. Uh, most likely, as the Roman Empire progresses its own ideals and begins to move forward, move a little bit more away from um, its, the Greek influence, um, it decides it needs its own language um, and begins to centralize a little bit more in Latin as opposed to speaking Greek. Um, so I, I would say there's probably an argument in language history that Greek got overpassed by Latin. Um, the earliest known Latin translations are from 180 AD, so just less than 100 years after John wrote Revelation. Uh, various missionaries and local congregations independently took up the task of translating the Greek scriptures into Latin. So when we talk about translation, you remember the detail we talked about the transcribing of the Old Testament by the scribes and the detail they took, and they remember all the uh, the amazing uh, counting systems they had to make sure they didn't mess anything up um, and how faithful they were to that. When you start having people take these Greek letters that have probably been copied a couple times and they're going to translate them into Latin, there's an opportunity for errors to occur just because there's not a major system in place to make sure these are, there's not a guarded system, I guess, in place to make sure things are done correctly. Um, so that being the case, um, with these independent uh, um, translations of the Greek into the Latin, there resulted variant readings of the New Testament. So that was, so you've got the Latin is now, trans, the, the scriptures are now translated in Latin, so it's available to the people that speak Latin primarily, yet there's a myriad of translations out there. We can't just say, hey, there's, the, hey, there's one faithful Latin translation at this point. And that brings us to our next point, and we'll spend some time here, because um, this is very important. It brings us to the Latin Vulgate. So because of the variant readings in different areas of the Latin-speaking world, the Bishop of Rome requested that a unified Latin edition of the scriptures be compiled in 382 AD. And that's where we get the Latin Vulgate. Vulgate comes from the word vulgata, which means common or commonly ex uh, accepted, not expected, accepted. Um, and this was done by a man by the name of Jerome, who was born in 345 A.D. in north in an area called Dalmatia. Maybe where we get Dalmatians, I don't know. Um, which is in current northwest modern Greece. He was a dedicated linguist in understanding Greek and the Latin classics, and he focused on rhetoric in his studies. And at some point, though, he has a desire to really study the scriptures. Um, and he leaves the comforts of Rome, um, after where he's done all his studies, and spends about five years in the desert of 
Syria as a hermit. Um, and he returns to Rome as the secretary for the bishop, though, years later, the same bishop who requested that the uh, scriptures be translated into one common Latin language so everybody could have them. So his initial translation included just the four Gospels, but eventually he completed all the scriptures over a period of time. His goal was to restore the Latin manuscripts to conform to the original for his work. Um, he was criticized for his work, though. You know, people that had translations in Latin felt like theirs were sufficient. Obviously, if, if you possessed a, a, what you felt to be a true copy or a true translation of the scriptures, you would um, hold those dear. So when somebody comes in and says, oh, no, here's the right one, you felt threatened. Um, but Jerome, though, was a studious um, Latin scholar, and he, his response to those that criticized him was, if they dislike water drawn from the clear spring, let them drink from the muddy streamlet. So saying that, you know, there are some complications in all the translations that have been done. So this kind of became the accepted um, um, translation in the Latin world. Um, and it was officially, not officially done, but by the 6th century, it was the common version for all of Christendom. So the 6th century, that's 500 A.D., so 500 A.D., and the Reformation doesn't happen until 1517. So we have 1,000 years there. So throughout the Middle Ages, it was the Bible of the church. I use the term Middle Ages. I'll use medieval times, medieval age, interchangeably, right? Um, you could also use dark ages to some degree as well if you'd like. Um, so it was the Bible of the church. By the 13th century, a theologian, a theologian in Paris by the name of Stephen Langton arranged the Latin Vulgate into chapter and verse, which is still in use today. Um, interestingly enough, though, there's not a church decree or council that identifies the Latin Vulgate as the official translation of the Roman Catholic Church until 1546. So that seems kind of reactionary to something that I just mentioned in 1517. Um, so they, they didn't feel the need to sponsor, to say that the Latin Vulgate was the official um, 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 translation of the church until they were challenged by the Reformation when they brought on other uh, scriptures in other languages. Um, so 1546 at the Council of Trent, and if those of you that are familiar with the Reformation history, Council of Trent is the primary council of what we call the Counter-Reformation. And the Counter-Reformation is the response of the Roman Catholic Church to the Protestant Re Reformation. Um, so 1546, the Council of Trent, Trent um, accepted the Latin Vulgate as the translation of the Roman Catholic Church. However, it obviously had broad acceptance. that It was the church, it was the Bible of the preceding 1,000 years as well without the official church sponsorship. So a couple things we should say, probably should have already flipped over here. A couple things we should say about the Latin Vulgate. Currently, there are about 10,000 Latin manuscripts um, of the Latin Vulgate, which is the most of any manuscript. So a manuscript is a um, handwritten um, writing in the language that it was originally, not the original writing, because it's not a Greek manuscript, but in the Latin. So there's 10,000 Latin manuscripts that exist today. Um, Interestingly enough, Jerome's translation was not directly from the Greek. He cited the Greek, um, but it really was an assessment of multiple Latin translations, and he kind of assimilated all those together. So to some degree, it could be flawed, 
because it's not directly translating from the original Greek manuscripts. That's, as Protestants, that's one thing we would um, find as troubling, for sure. And as uh, ones wanting to be faithful to what the scriptures say, we want to go directly to those original sources. But he kind of kind of used the, uh, the Greek as a secondary source. Um, it, the initial translations into the languages that people were speaking day in, day out, were from the Latin Vulgate. Um, we'll talk about that in a little bit. The first major Bible to be printed was the Latin Vulgate. It was the Gutenberg Bible. It was Latin. Um, many of our English words in, um, in the scriptures are derived from Latin. There's obviously a correlation between Latin and English as well. Um, so this is the official translation of the Roman Catholic Church for a thousand years. It still is today even. So even the Roman Catholic Church relies upon a translation um, for its primary source as opposed to something from the original sources. Uh, so when you start looking at a, an English Roman Catholic Bible, it's a translation of a translation as opposed to a translation from a Greek, manu Greek or Hebrew manuscript. So definitely a little bit different for us. Um, so, it, so Latin, at some point here, Latin's not the only language. The Roman Catholic Church's power continues to grow um, throughout Europe. Um, and I think it's important that we paint this picture that not everyone was speaking Latin. So you've got people in France, you've got people in Spain, you've got people in Germany, you've got people in England, all with different names at that time, though. Um, but just give you a geographic reason that are all speaking their local languages. And this is the Middle Ages. This is the time of the lords and the serfs. So you've got a major separation of the upper class and the lower class. That's all that exists. And you have the church kind of reigning as the primary political and religious um, leadership of the time. And within the church, they had this protected Latin document that's really for the elite. It's not for the common people. It's, it's probably... It's, it, there's this view that you have to have special training to understand the scriptures. Well, it's pretty obvious. If it's in Latin, you do have to have special training. You have to learn Latin to understand the scriptures. So, so you're, you've got to understand this picture. That's why it's the Dark Ages. There's not enlightened learning going on. I don't say enlightened like the Enlightenment, per se, but it's not illuminated by other um, desires for people to learn. And the scriptures are kind of part of that. You know, they're kind of kept in this treasury away from the people. Um, and I, so you're pretty much, so when Paul tells us to be like the Bereans and we're supposed to seek out the scriptures for our own to see what we're being taught is true, they can't do it. They don't have it. The scriptures aren't in their, um, in their language. So pretty dire hope. So like, what's the deal? That's, that's really unfortunate for that thousand years. They were dependent upon uh, the church to provide them the explanation of what the scriptures say. The, the main method, I think, at the time in that age um, for communicating the scriptures was morality plays. So you would do plays or dr dramas that illustrated biblical stories or truths so that people would understand them. But that was only as good as what the church wanted it to tell the people. And as, and as we get closer and closer to the Reformation, the church gets more and more diluted by the world, um, and it gets more and more diluted by its traditions and by its um, desire to contain power within itself. Um, and that's impetus for the, for the Reformation, for sure. Um, none of that was in my notes, but I'm excited about that. 
Okay. All right, so the Renaissance. So the Renaissance, we all probably are familiar with this. The Renaissance is the period around 1400 AD of kind of dramatic change in Europe. And I wanted to talk about four or five things that happened in the, in the Renaissance that then impacted the Reformation, okay? Number one, so the majority of writing that was done prior to the Renaissance was done in Latin. It was the language of the elite, the, the language of the educated. So in the Renaissance, though, writing began to be done in the vernacular of the people. So the vernacular is how, how you and I speak. Um, it's in our common language. Um, and the first person to do this is this young man with, I don't know what those, the Ides of March or whatever on his head, but that's Dante Alighieri. Dante is of Dante's Inferno. Uh, the Divine Comedy is the name of his work. Um, there's one of my resources makes us spend several pages on the fact, is Dante a medieval man or is he a modern man? And it's not the purpose for us to talk about right here, but he kind of bridges the gap between the medieval age and the Renaissance, um, but definitely has many traits of the Middle Ages, especially um, the theology that he's um, writing about in the Divine Comedy. Um, but he wrote the Divine Comedy in the Italian of the day, first in the language of the people instead of Latin. The Divine Comedy has three sections. It's Dante's Inferno, the Purgatory, and Paradise. Um, those are the three stages. So you can see the allusions to Roman Catholic theology for sure there. Also in the uh, Renaissance, most of the Italian humanists wrote in the common Italian. So this was a major shift um, of the educated people since in the Middle Ages most of the works were done in Latin. So, so the fact that the vernacular was being um, written was important. Next, the, obviously the most important invention of the Renaissance is the printing press, um, which was um, invented by a man by the name of Johannes Gutenberg in 1456. First book he published was the Latin Vulgate. The printing press, it was movable type, um, so now you can you know, print an entire page at one time after you set the type versus having to have that scriptorium we talked about of five to ten people copying um, the, the scriptures or whatever book you were trying to copy. Um, that was a major impetus, but the, that happened in the mid-1400s. The printing press was important, but it really didn't take off until the Reformation. So the Reformation is, it's amazing to see that the, um, the reformers and those of that ilk in that time were the ones that took the printing press to the next level. Um, so I guess some probably secular historians would say that the Reformation was the result of the, part of the result of the printing press. I would argue that the printing press is the result of the Reformation, its uh, use. So I have a couple quotes for you about that. And I just don't like typing these out, so I'm just going to read from my book. Um, historian Myron Gilmore says, the invention and development of printing with a movable type brought about the most radical transformation in the conditions of intellectual life in the history of Western civilization. It opened new horizons in education and in the communication of ideas. Its effects were sooner or later felt in every department of hum human activity. So I, it's just amazing to think about a world existing without the printed word, but just think about that and then how quickly information could be churned out for people at this time. Um, other quotes here, um, 
let's see. Uh, Luther said that um, the printing press was God's latest and best work to spread the true religion throughout the world. Um, another historian says that from 1500 to the beginning of the Reformation, German printers were turning out only 40 books a year. It's pretty, not, a, not a significant amount. But once the Reformation was launched, the figure rocketed to 500 titles annually. So really starting to churn out more and more works. Um, and then a, a, a contemporary of Luther's said, Luther's books were not so much sold as snatched from the hands of the booksellers. It's like they get printed and they were gone. You know, they were immediately there. And then, so when you're thinking of that, thinking of the printed word and Luther's, the amount of Luther's works that could be disseminated and the, the, the broad scope of areas that were impacted by that, it's an amazing achievement for sure by the, um, because of the printing press. Okay, the next part, uh, this is still the Renaissance. I just jumped ahead of the Reformation some, but that's okay. We're going to keep doing that. Um, is the term ad, fonte, ad fontes, which is a Latin term, which means from the source. So it's a, a return to learning of the original sources. Um, so the Renaissance is um, emphasized learning of Greek and Roman literature and the classics. Um, that's important as we start considering the scriptures. Um, we're not going to be dependent upon the Latin Vulgate because it's not the original source, but we're going to appeal to those other sources in the Greek um, and the Hebrew. So the, the, the belief in this ad fontes led to a renewal of interest in the original languages of the Bible so those could be studied. Um, another important achievement from the Renaissance age and from a Renaissance uh, figure is Erasmus's Greek New Testament. Um, the greatest humanist of the, Reformation, of the Renaissance is a man by the name of Desiderius Erasmus, who lived from 1467 to 1536. So towards the end of the Reformation, uh, excuse me, towards the end of the Renaissance, he completed a Greek translation of the New Testament where he compiled Greek manuscripts and other sources um, that had attempted to do this already um, and put together the Greek New Testament. Um, his printer, it, it, his initial Greek New Testament included 1,000 pages of Greek, and it was printed in short, six short months, which seems like a really long time to me, but when you're printing 1,000 pages and changing things up, that'd be different, pretty difficult, obviously. Um, his second edition was done three years later in 1519, and together his first two editions sold 3,300 3, copies. Um, his second edition was most likely used by Luther um, to translate the New Testament into German, and his third edition was most likely used by Tyndale to translate the New Testament into English. So we owe a lot of debt to Erasmus. Now Erasmus is a Renaissance figure. He is not a Protestant. Um, he maintained, even though he agreed with a lot of the Reformation guidelines and the things that were driving forces for the Reformation, um, he remained a Roman Catholic. Um, and there's even dialogue, books back and forth between Erasmus and Luther. A um, couple things here I'm going to highlight in this next section is just the rise of the middle class. So we talked about the medieval time, medieval ages, the Middle Ages having the large discrepancy between the elite, the lords, and the serfs. Um, what really happened during the time of the Renaissance and the Reformation was the middle class became, became established. Um, there was this, this new merchant class um, that was different than what had existed before. Um, cities became the center of commerce. So it, just, it wasn't just the landowners and the farmers, you know, uh, but now cities were more important. 
Um, life became less like the feudal system of the Middle Ages. Um, the, this middle class desired to be educated, and it started to rise in stature. Also, these people rallied for nationalistic interests. So they were in Germany, or they were in France or England or whatever, and they appealed to the, their geographic area as opposed to, let's say, the Roman Catholic Church or the Holy Roman Empire or whatever at the time. Um, so they saw the need to be independent from papal authority. And really what helped unify these people and draw this middle class together and this whole part of society was language. Um, so the unifying factor was the fact they all spoke the same language and, and weren't interested in learning Latin. Okay, so that's the Renaissance. Good. We're doing good here. All right, so I'm going to highlight about four or five major translations that happened. Really going to stick, I'm going to talk just briefly about Wycliffe and Tyndale as we talk about the English, because next week we're really going to spend a lot of time on the English translations of, uh, of the Bible during the Reformation and going forward. And we'll talk about the King James, and we'll talk about the uh, Geneva Bible. Really some neat things will come out next week about that. Um, and that's the reason I really want to spend a lot of time on that is this exhibit that's coming in May, the Truth Remains exhibit, it's going to be primarily English Bibles that were from this time period. So we'll talk about that. Uh, John Wycliffe, though, is the first to translate the Bible from the Latin into English, and he did that in 1380. You can see he lived from 1329 to 1384. Um, anybody that studies the Reformation um, and um, understands that John Wycliffe and another guy in another part of the world, John Huss, are two precursors to the Reformation. Um, very, in Wycliffe's theologies, there are a lot of things that show up later in the Reformation. Um, but the first thing he did is he wanted the, the, the um, scriptures to be in the language of the people. Or maybe that wasn't the first thing, but it was the priority for him. So he translated, along with his associates, the entire Bible from um, the Latin Vulgate. All right, our favorite character, some of ours at least. Um, the next major translation was Martin Luther's, what we call September of Evil. Luther lived from 1483 to 1546. Um, a couple things about Luther. Um, he's a uh, Augustinian monk, um, very much struggled with the severity of his sin and judgment by God. Um, pretty much was converted reading, I think, Romans 1, 16, the just, uh, the just shall live by faith. No, that's not it. What is it? The righteous shall be justified by faith or something like that. We'll, we'll talk about that when we talk about Luther more. But he's reading Romans, and he's transformed at that point. Um, and he begins the Reformation. So he starts already kind of, that's probably around 15, 14, 15, 15. 15, 17 is the major point of the Reformation as it starts. Um, he understands there's a man coming to his town, Wittenberg, Germany, uh, by the name of Johann Tetzel. Johann Tetzel is popular because he sells indulgences. The Roman Catholic Church at the time sold indulgences that would help um, take your um, lost loved one out of purgatory. You could purchase this indulgence. It's a piece of paper from the Pope that says, hey, you give me 500 coins or whatever the number is, and your lost loved one will not have to spend any longer time in purgatory. Um, I think the term that, that uh, Tetzel used was every time, man, I see I'm going off my notes, a gold coin ring in the coffer rings, 
a soul from Purgatory Springs. So it was like this, and it was like this medieval circus when Tetzel came to town, and people would buy these indulgences. That was um, um, heretical, obviously. But it really, uh, that was Luther's main, initial main opposition to um, the Roman Catholic Church. These funds, interestingly enough, for indulgent selling, led to opulent lives of the popes, um, oftentimes um, immoral lives that were going on at the time. Um, And it led to the construction of St. Peter's. So St. Peter's Basilica, which is the primary church in the Vatican today, was built off of the um, representation that people were being sprung from um, purgatory. Um, So that is a scary legacy, in my view. Um, So Luther, in 1517, the thing he does is he takes a hammer and he he writes out his 95 theses, which are his 95 complaints against the Roman Catholic Church, and he nails them to the door of the Wittenberg Church. Everything got nailed to the door of the Wittenberg Church at that time. That was your place that you go for information. Um, But he nailed these complaints against the Roman Catholic Church. That's 1517. Things go on and on, and Luther keeps appealing to the Roman Catholic Church, saying, hey, if you guys would just listen to me, we could debate this, we can have a a common sense um, discussion about the things that I disagree with with the Roman Catholic Church. Um, And Luther's goal at this point is not to break away from the church. He wants to reform the church. He wants it to restore it to its pure state as opposed to the state it's in right now. And eventually they, uh, they do agree. He has a couple uh, discussions. 1521 is the Diet of Worms, Worms, W-O-R-M-S. And that's where he makes his eloquent, here I stand. They ask him, are these your writings? Because um, there's all these writings he has that are opposed to um, the Pope. And they say, are these your writings? He says, Give me some time to think about that. And he comes, he gets one night, comes back the next day, and he says, pretty much here I stand, unless you can convince me by scripture or plain reason that what I've written is incorrect, um, then um, um, he has to stand on what he's written. Um, so some mysteriously, though, uh, Luther's going to be excommunicated, and that's the goal. Somehow he gets kidnapped at that moment from Worms, and he gets tucked away. This is, this is the story we're getting to. He gets tucked away in a place called the Wartburg Castle. And at that time, he's kind of in seclusion. Um, I don't know if any of y'all have seen the more recent Luther movie. I think it's like Joseph Fiennes or something like that. Um, But it's kind of like he's gone mad. (laughs) He's like in this study. But what he's doing is translating the scriptures, taking that Greek New Testament from um, Erasmus, and he's translating the scriptures into German. Um, And his, his initial focus was the New Testament. He was able to do that rather quickly while he was doing that. So he's, Luther has this obsessive nature, I think, and he was able to do that um, at that time. He, what's amazing, well, also he, um, by 1530, after he's completed the New Testament in 1522, in 15, by 1530, he and his closest associate, Philip Melanchthon, completed the translation of the Old Testament as well. Um, the amazing thing about Luther, and this is where, the Reformation is closely tied to, this has nothing to do with church history, but it's closely tied to like the formation of nationalistic states at the time. Luther, Luther's efforts were sponsored by the regional prince of the area where he was. Um, but 
Luther's German translation of the New Testament really cultivated the modern German language. So you can, so when you start looking at the formation of German itself as a language, people point back to, to Luther, which shows his genius in his in his ability to um, comprehend language and to translate the scriptures. Um, so he obviously um, he relied on Melanchthon significantly um, for the Old Testament because Melanchthon was a much greater Hebrew scholar than he was. But the, you kind of see that as these translations um, occur and are done throughout Europe, there's several of them, they are the impetus for the modern, those modern languages. So the scriptures themselves are core at the formation of languages in the middle or post-Middle Ages in Europe. Um, I do have notes. Um, so Luther's overall, um, his um, guiding principle, I guess, was he wanted the commoner to be able to read the scriptures, wanted him to be able to read and study and learn of God. Yes. Yes. Yes, from the Greek and from the Hebrew, not from the Latin. So unlike Wycliffe. So Wycliffe, this, the Renaissance, though, with Wycliffe, we gotta, let's think about Wycliffe in the time. We're like, oh, man, Wycliffe, you should have gone back to the Greek. Well, <coughs> there was not this societal emphasis on um, understanding of the classics in the Greek literature. There was, he didn't know Greek. Um, so we got to, people are men and women of their times. We got to understand that context as we read that. Um, overall, of uh, Luther's Bible, 200,000 copies were printed. That's a lot. So we went from having the one Bible, maybe in the church, or the one Bible in the monastery that everybody could resource or whatever, and the copies that were done by the monks to 200,000 scriptures. It's amazing. And just to think about that, the city of Wittenberg was like 2,500 people. So it's not like everybody in Wittenberg. It was, that was just for Wittenberg. It was for the whole region of Germany. Absolutely amazing. Um, next, uh, person we're going to talk about, which we'll talk about next week, is William Tyndale, 1525. Um, I have 1525 in one spot, 1530 in another spot. We'll have to verify, verify that for next week. I think it's probably 1530. Uh, first translation into English from the Greek and Hebrew sources. We will spend a significant amount of time on Tyndale next week. Several other important translations. Um, the Froschauer Bible in Zurich in 1529. Interesting also, by the end of the 16th century, in Zurich, so it's in Switzerland, over 90 editions of the Bible have been printed. So not only were they initially being translated into the, the languages of the people, but people were taking them up and studying them and comparing them to the Greek, um, to the Greek, and making better translations. So really hard work was being done to make sure that what was being uh, translated was accurate. Um, and I think that sets a good precedence for us as we consider what we do with our English English translations. Fifteen uh, thirty, the first French Bible was translated by a man by the name of Jacques Lefebvre de Tapels. And each of these set the stage for the modern languages of their countries. So I've got about five minutes here. Um, but in conclusion, what, what can we say about the efforts of Bible translation in the Reformation? And I think I've already hit on some of this just in my ab-libbing. But definitely there's a major theological impact. Um, the Reformers appealed to the authority of Scripture 
um, for um, what they were teaching, not the authority of the church. Um, so the church itself, the Ro- when I say the church, the Roman Catholic Church would say that it is giving authority to the scriptures itself. The reformers would argue, no, the scriptures have authority, and everything I'm making a statement on about doctrine is appealing to the scriptures, not appealing to um, the church or church t- tradition. The Roman Catholic Church has really gotten to the place where they exalted church tradition and papal authority over that of the scriptures. Um, the not only were the scriptures able to be translated, but the uh, each of these re- each of the reformers, whether it be Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, the Anabaptist reformers, all were able to write commentaries and pamphlets outlining their doctrinal differences with Roman Catholic Church, or in some cases with each other, and those were disseminated to the people very easily because of printing. Um, another thing was the 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 reformers' belief in the priesthood of all believers. Um, that is a rather Protestant and Reformation ideal that comes from the scriptures. Um, there was no need for a priestly mediator for confession, repentance, or basic knowledge of the scriptures. Instead, you know, we're, we're all indwelt with the Spirit. We, we can go to Christ directly. We don't need that mediator. Um, and I think that's there. There's a, a view in the Catholic Church that we're protecting you from, or at this time, protecting you from, um, we're, we're giving you what you need in the scriptures and protecting you in some way um, and giving other things that are outside of what the scriptures say. Uh, besides the theological impact, though, um, there's a great literacy impact. Um, I think much credit needs to be given to um, the Protestant Reformation for helping people become more literate. Uh, because they were wanting to learn the scriptures. So they needed to learn how to read. They needed to learn how to write. They needed how to, how to handle a book and how to think deeply. So um, the Protestant Reformation, because of its emphasis on Bible translation, impacted literacy and education and scholarship. I think because of the efforts, obviously, um, by these folks, we have not only do we have translations, but we have more accurate translations. The, the, the desire to always go back and evaluate and make sure that what is being translated is correct. Um, I think that's a um, something we've taken as evangelicals directly from the reformers. Um, and then lastly, obviously, the unprecedented distribution of printed Bibles and biblically related literature at the time of the Reformation um, is a huge concluding point for the Reformation. Um, it is obviously, it's like, you know, and I think it's, uh, Galatians says, and in the fullness of times, God sent forth his son. And it's like you start thinking about it from a historical standpoint, too, about how, hey, everybody, the Greek was the common language, and the, Ro- and the Roman Empire had created these Roman roads. And there was kind of this, for this large area, the New Testament times of, of Jesus, there was possibilities to get the gospel to other places very easily that might not have existed, you know, a thousand years earlier. But that's part of God's sovereign hand. And also part of God's sovereign hand in history is this distribution of the scriptures and the um, commentaries and pamphlets about the scriptures. Um, and it kind of lines up perfectly. It, it's almost like it's God's plan. So it is um, that the printing press was available and this renewal of the sources and going back to the Greek. And, and it, it's an amazing thing. And I think as we consider that, um, that should draw us to worship God.
because what it does is it points that God is responsible for building his church. He's responsible for protecting his word, and he's responsible for leading his people. Now, there can be heresy that comes of that too, obviously, um, and there are negative aspects of the Reformation as well, so I don't want to paint that as a perfect picture because in all of these things, God is using men, and we fail um, in a lot of avenues. But the fact that there was so much available at one given time totally revolutionized the world, and I think it's to the praise of the Lord for that. So if you have any questions or comments, I've got a couple minutes here, actually, if you want to play Stump the Chump. Oh, good. Oh, that's, that's the best part of my day. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Dear Lord, we do praise you, Lord. We praise you that you were at work in history. We praise you that you have been at work and you would continue to be. Lord, that's what gives us hope. Um, it gives us hope that your plan is going to be accomplished. Um, and Lord, it's, it's amazing to look back and see your hand at work, and we praise you for that. Lord, we love you. We love you for what you've done for us through Jesus. Lord, thank you for the message that Dan preached already this morning. And and for those that are going to the service, Lord, I pray you would open hearts. I uh, pray, Lord, that they would come away being greater worshipers of you for what you've done on our behalf through Jesus, the God-man. In his name we pray.